0: Good morning. It's not often you see a snake on the pulpit. That's not intentional. That is the reality of having our kids in the church, (laughs) Um, which is a good thing. Uh, Could you turn your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 17? Judges chapter 17. And I want to give you a heads up. Next week in Judges is going to get a little bit crazy. Um, we are delighted, as always, to have the children in the room with us. Uh, we're delighted for that. But I do want to give the parents a heads up that, that next week uh, is going to be quite interesting. So that is fair warning to you parents. Uh, read on to the end of Judges. My children will be in the room. I will try and be as sensitive as possible. But even just by reading the words there, um, you will see. So that's my warning uh, to you. Fair warning at this point. Judges chapter 17. Um, As I was thinking through this passage this morning, I started to think about um, the way I love to see people opening up presence. I love to see people opening up presence. Where are you gonna go with this? It'll make sense in a second but there's a difference between the Dean household and the Nepomuceno household and how we open presents. The Nepomuceno household, it is a free for all. You have the presents, everybody opens them all at the same time. The Dean household, the giving of presents is one at a time. Everybody just watches the person gives the present. Everybody sits nice and quietly. It is very John Dean. If you know John Dean at all, it is very him in that process. And so we give one present at a time and everybody watches. And I love watching people open up presents, especially children. Because as children get the present, They're all excited and they start opening up the present quite slowly. And you see suddenly what happens as they open up the present, especially if they want the present. If they don't want the present, it's a bit nasty. But if they do want the present, what happens? They open the thing up and they start to go (gasps) like that. That moment I love to see. And that moment is the moment of awe. That moment is the moment of adoration. I would suggest to you that that moment, oh, I got louder. That's not a good thing for you. <laughs> you can turn me off if you need to. That moment is a moment of adoration, but it is also a moment, I think, a small picture of worship. See, I believe we as people, we were made to do exactly that, but not for just that moment. Not for just a split moment. I believe that we as God's people, we were made to do that. To stand in awe, we were made to do that for eternity. Can you imagine for eternity? Okay, well, just turn me off, I'd say. Can you imagine for eternity, us standing in complete awe in that moment? Forever and ever and ever. Now, don't get me wrong. The new heaven and the new earth won't be just us like that. In the new heaven and the new earth, we will be living and working and, and together for the Lord. But we will be in awe of him all of the time. That is the life I want. That is what I think we were made for. We were made for that kind of worship. We're worshipers. Every single human being here, all of you here, whether you are a Christian or not, you are a worshiper. The question is, what is it that you worship? And here in chapter 17 and 18 in Judges, we have a picture of not true worship. We have a picture of false worship. So here's what I'm going to do in chapter 17 we're going to look at one aspect of false worship I'm going to read two sections there and we're going to explain that together in chapter 17 and then chapter 18 what I'm going to do is I'm going to overview chapter 18 summarize that in many ways for you and we're going to see another aspect another picture another angle of false worship and in that way it is a warning to us as human beings and Christians not to partake in that type of worship. And the first thing I think we see in chapter 17 about false worship is this. False worship says this. False worship says, I make the rules. That's false worship. I make the rules. I'm in charge. That's false worship. Chapter 17 of Judges, verse one. There is a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the one thousand one hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, the pieces of silver that he stole. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to take a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we see in those verses is a picture of false worship. And what false worship says is this. I make all the rules. I'm in charge. And we're introduced to this guy called Micah, Micah from Ephraim. Ephraim is the place where the tabernacle of God was in Shiloh. This is the place where God was to be worshipped. He is from the place in which God was to be worshipped. And we are introduced to Micah and we find out something about Micah. Micah is not a good Micah, Micah is a bad Micah. Now I know three Micahs. The first Micah I know is, is the good Micah, Micah the prophet. There's a book in the Bible named after him, Micah the prophet. He calls God's people to repent and trust in him. I know the good Micah. The second Micah I know is the amazing Micah. Abby's Micah, Hannah's Micah. He is the amazing Micah. He does no wrong. He is a beautiful little boy. I love him. I cherish him. He is the amazing Micah. But then there is the bad Micah. And the bad Micah is this mica that we see here. The bad Micah here is the guy who partakes in false worship, who says, I make all the rules. Now, what did he do? First, he stole from his mother. He stole from his mother and he says, in effect, if I want to steal something, I can steal something. And so in stealing something, what does he do? He says to himself, I don't care what the Eighth Commandment says. I'm going to steal. I don't care what it says. I make all the rules. And not only did Micah steal, but guess who he stole from? Micah steals from his mother. And so in stealing from his mother, do you know what he does? He breaks the fifth commandment. He does not honor his father and his mother. I see the rules. I make my own rules. That's bad Micah. But you say bad Micah, is actually not that bad at all because yes, he did break those two commandments. He stole, he dishonored his mother. But what did bad Micah do? He came and he brought back what he stole. So surely that's good, isn't it? I mean, he restored what he stole, except for this. Leviticus, in the law of God, Leviticus chapter 6, I know you all read Leviticus so well. Leviticus chapter 6, it tells us and gives God's people an instruction for what you do if you've stolen something. And what you're supposed to do if you've stolen something is not just return it back and pay it back. But if you've stolen something, you are supposed to offer a sacrifice, a guilt offering to the Lord to make an atonement for your sin. Except Micah does none of that. What is Micah afraid of? Micah is afraid of the curse that his mother, did you see it in the passage, spoke into his ears. See, I believe his mother had a feeling that someone stole it. And she speaks the curse right into his ears. And afraid of the curse, he gives it back. Micah says, I make my own Rules. If I want to steal, I'll steal. If I want to dishonor, I'll dishonor. If I don't want to offer an offering, I won't offer an offering. And Micah's mother isn't all that better either. Micah's mother, she makes all the rules for herself. Because in verse three, she says this, I dedicate the silver that you stole to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. She dedicates the silver that was stolen. I dedicate it to God. This is all about God. And here's what I'm going to do. We're going to make a carved image of God. She sees the second commandment that says you shall not make carved images. And she says what? I will make the rules. See, we're not called to make images of God. Timothy Keller talks about this well, because if we were to make an image of God, we would neglect ultimately part of his character. If we were to make an image of God that would focus on his love, we would neglect his wrath. If we were to make an image of God that would focus on his grace, we would neglect his justice. You cannot bring God into an image. Cannot do that. We're not called to do that. And so they break the eighth commandment, the fifth commandment, the second commandment, because they say, I'll make all the rules. And it's interesting how much she spends on this image of God. 200 pieces of silver. I will give God 200 pieces of silver. We'll keep the rest of the money. And so she keeps the rest of the money. And then Micah, he makes the shrine because he thinks he should. And then finally, what does Micah do? After making this image, after setting up the shrine, Micah says, well, we have to have a priest. And who do they appoint as priest? His son. Who are you not supposed to appoint as priest? Those who are not Levites. What are they doing? They're saying, we make all the rules. Do you want to summarize what they're doing? Verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't care what the Lord commands. I don't care what the Lord says. I will make all my own rules. I will do what is right in my own eyes. From there in verse seven, it carries on and they meet a Levite. Look at verse seven. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Verse 9. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Verse 10. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. Here's what happens. They make this carved image. He makes this shrine. He has all these gods in his house because he's making all these rules. And then there's this guy roaming around the place. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know where he should live. You kind of feel sorry for the Levite except for this. God allotted a land for his people. And Joshua, he allotted a land for his people, he allotted lands for the Levites, he allotted a home for them to go. He told them to go and take the land, and this guy is wandering about homeless because he hasn't obeyed the Lord. He has no home, and he is walking away from his home, which is Bethlehem of Judah. And as he is walking away to find a home, Micah spots him. And Micah thinks, "Wow!" I can get a real priest now. And if I get a real priest, that's going to make our worship way better. So what does he do? He hires the real priest, which means what? He fires his own son. Who cares about that guy? He's old news now. I've got a real priest now who's going to help me. And then the key verse says this in verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. I make all the rules, I make all the decisions, I'm the king, now God has to prosper me. I think we can get caught up in this in our lives. I think we can subtly start to make all of the rules in our lives and believe that if we make the rules, then God's going to bless me. If I make the rules, if I'm in charge, and I do things the way I think they should be done, well, then surely God will bless me. Sometimes we get caught up in this idea as Christians. You know, there's this thing in Christianity that we call the quiet time. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. We've, we've kind of made up the language, quiet time. We've made that language up. But the reason we made that language up is because in the Psalms, it tells us to meditate on God's word day and night. So the idea for the Christian, if you're not a Christian, let me just explain. The idea is this Christians will often use the phrase quiet time and they'll say, we want one time alone to pray, to read the Bible, to maybe sing to God on our own. That's, that's a quiet time. And that's a good thing to do. I don't think it is a wrong thing to do. But what happens in with the good things that we have, often we kind of twist it and make it ritualistic in terms of our own rules. So we start to think things like this. I'm going to have my quiet time, my time with the Lord, every day at six o'clock in the morning. That's when I'm going to have it. And if I have it every day at six o'clock in the morning, he will bless me. He will prosper me. But if I don't have it every day at six o'clock in the morning, he won't bless me. He won't prosper me. I have my quiet time at 8 p.m. every single night. That's when I have it. And if I have it at that time, then he will bless me. Then he will prosper me. And if I don't have it, then he won't bless me and he won't prosper me. Your salvation is not by your works. It is by grace. But often what can happen to us with good things is those things can can seep into our lives and we change them and make new rules to say, if I do this, he will then bless me. If I read the Bible a certain amount in the day, he will bless me. If I pray five times instead of one time, then he will prosper me. Surely five times is better than the once. And of course we're meant to meditate on God's word all day and night. We're meant to pray to him. Of course we're meant to do those things. I'm not saying that that is wrong. What I'm saying is wrong is when we make our own rules and we think because of our rules, then he will prosper me. Sometimes we think if we pray a certain way, he'll prosper me. Sometimes we think if we sing a certain song, he'll prosper me no it is not our rules we don't determine how we come to God he determines how we come to him and there is only one way that is to him it is not by your rituals it is not by your rules it is not by your traditions there is only one way to Jesus and that is Jesus because Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life nobody comes to the father except through me therefore you cannot come to God through your own rules you cannot come to God through your own rituals you cannot come to God through your own religious practices you come to God through Jesus and Jesus alone Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. False worship says, I make all the rules. Do you know why they did what was right in their own eyes? Did you hear the phrase before? They had no king in Israel. They'd rejected the Lord as their king and they went their own way, following after their own rules. False worship says, I make all the rules but there's a second thing that false worship says and we see that in chapter 18 false worship not only says i make my own rules false worship says i make my own gods that's what false worship says and what i'm going to do is kind of overview and summarize chapter 18 for you but i just want to read the first verse of chapter 18 for you as we begin In chapter 18, verse 1, what does it say? In those days, there was no king in Israel. That is their primary problem. They don't have a king. They're making their own rules. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. Where will we live? For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. That verse is so key for us. Why? Because it begins by saying, in those days they had no king in Israel. And what's that second half of this sentence that you expect to happen? They had no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It is a literary way of telling us that everything else that's going to happen in chapter 18 is people doing what is right in their own eyes because they have no king. And then there's Dan. And Dan... The tribe, Dan, is strolling around the place, just like the Levite was strolling around the place. Where am I going to live? I don't have a home. Where am I going to be? And Dan is saying the exact same thing. Where am I going to live? Where am I going to go? The thing is, God had allotted them a land. In Joshua chapter 19, God had allotted them a land and asked them, you go and you take that land, Danites. But they were afraid in Judges chapter 1 to take the land because the people were too strong. And they did not take the land. And so they became like the people of the land. And here they are, homeless. Why? Because they were not obedient. And so they are going to partake in false worship. So what happens to these guys, Dan? Well, what happens to these guys, Dan, is this. They're searching around for their home. They're trying to find a home. Where are we going to stay? And so they send out these five spies to search out the land to find out where they're going to stay. When, you, when you're when you looking for a home, you, you need something to help you find the home. We use daft.ie, which is a really addictive website. We use that. I go on to that for no reason whatsoever. I don't need a place. I don't I just I just like to see what, what things cost and, and and dream of places I could live, but that I never would. And I know I'm supposed to be dreaming of heaven, but I'm a sinner and I and I love to look at mansions on daft.ie. But as they're looking back to Dan, as they're looking um, as they're looking for this place, they don't have daftari. What do they have? They have five spies. So they send out the sp- five spies, look out for a land. And so the five spies, they go looking out for a land and they happen upon a house. The house that they come upon is, guess what? Bad Micah's house. So they come to Bad Micah's house and they meet who? The Levite who's found a home. Oh, you found a home. Tell us how to, how we're going to find a home. So they ask the, the Levite, bad Micahs, bad Levite, they ask him to inquire of the Lord and say a prayer to the Lord. And now the Levite, he doesn't say a prayer to the Lord. Here's what he says in verse 6 of chapter 18. And the priest said to them, so they asked, will you inquire of the Lord? And it doesn't tell us that they inquired of the Lord. He just says to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Very spiritual talk. Very strange language for him to use. The eye of the Lord be upon you. Blessings to you. Go and find your land. Except they should have just returned back to law and seen where was the place that God told them to go. Because God sent them the link. God showed them this this is where you're to go. This is the house. It's number six in that place. You go and find that and that's your land. That's your place that you're supposed to be. But they didn't. And so with the with the priest's blessing, Dan, they go out, the five spies, they go out and they start searching for a land. They come to a place called Laish or Laish. They come to this place and they say, wow, this place looks great. This place is spacious. It's wonderful. It's good. And guess what? The people are weaklings. We'll take them. We have no problem with those guys. Our allotted land, we're afraid of those guys. But this land, we can take these guys. This is going to be ours. So... They five spies, they go, they say, right, we have this place. This is a great place to live. We're going to take these guys. We're going to slaughter them. We're going to hammer them. All that sort of stuff that happens in the book of Judges, you know, there's always going to be kill- killings and all that kind of stuff. So they're like, we'll kill them, slaughter them. But what do they need in their homeland? They think to themselves, well, well, we're going to need, we're going to need a place to worship. We're going to need things to worship. And we're going to need a priest. It's kind of like in Ireland. I suppose in Ireland when they were like, you know, finding villages and finding little towns, they said to themselves, well, we've got to have a church and we've got to have a priest. That's basically what was happening in Ireland all the time. Church priest, church priest. So, you know, know the towns by the churches and all that kind of stuff. And so what they were saying to themselves, well, in Laish, we need some things to worship and we need priest. They think to themselves, ah at Micah's house, at Micah's house, he had loads of gods and, and he had a priest. So they think to themselves, what are we gonna do? We're gonna steal them both. That's what they say. And then in verse, down in verse 18, it says, chapter 18, verse 18, and when these went into Micah's house and took, took the carved image, the ephod the household gods and the metal image the priest said to them levi what are you doing and they said to him keep quiet put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest it is better for you to be priest to the house of one man is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe And a clan in Israel. What's better? Verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image. He had loads of stuff in his house. And went along with the people. The priest's eyes light up. Got a promotion here. I don't want to just have one guy, Micah, one house. I get a tribe. I get to be a priest to a whole tribe. Sees the opportunity, takes all the gods in his hand. If you are able to take a God in your hand, this is just logic, right? If you're able to take a God in your hand and hold it in your hand, here's my conclusion. I don't think it's a God. Because I believe in a God that I can't hold in my hand. I believe in a God who holds me in his hand. That's the God we are to believe in. That's the God we are to worship. That is the God we are to praise. And so Dan, they run off with, with, with the priest. They run off with the gods. They start running away. And as they run away, guess what? Micah's not happy with that. Micah's not happy with that. And so Micah and his company, they start to chase them. And then we see, what I want you to see, what we are leading up to and building up to, is what happens in verse 23. Dan and his company they came, and they shouted to the people, or Micah and his company they came, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, "What is the matter with you that you come with such a company." Verse 24. And he said, "You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away. What have I left?" How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And he leaves. They threaten him and he leaves. Micah, what's wrong with you? Micah comes and he says, you've taken my gods. You've taken my priests, my priest, I have nothing left. That is false worship. The thing in your life that is not God, that when it is taken away from you, you feel like you have nothing left. That's what Michael was partaking in. A false worship. If you take this carved image from me, don't take it from me, I'll have nothing left. If you take the Levite from me, don't take it from me, because if you take it from me, I'll have nothing left. We make our own gods, don't we? There are things in our lives that if someone were to take them away from us, we would feel like we have nothing left. But that is not true for the Christian. Because the Christian should be able to say that no matter what I have or whatever I lose, I still have the Lord. Easier said than done, right? Think of it. Now, parents, as parents, we love our children. We love them. We love them. We want good for them. But sometimes we forget that with our children, our job as parents is this. We're to parent them, educate them, and say, bye-bye. See you later. Go. Make your own family. But what can happen with parents is this love our children so much we have our children we protect our children we keep our children and we don't want to say bye-bye but that's not our job as parents so what happens is in in some way our our children become our idol the thing that we worship and we believe that if one day we lose them if one day they're gone then we will have nothing and that's just not true Yes, we are to love them. Yes, we are to cherish them. But no, no parents, we are not to worship them. Children, they're bad gods. They're bad gods. Don't worship them. Worship him. And then when they leave, you'll still have him. When they go, you'll still have him. You'll still be able to glorify him. You'll still love him. You won't have nothing. Sometimes this happens to us with our beauty, doesn't it? We, we worship and love our beauty and we think, if I remain beautiful, guess what happens to our beauty? It fades. One day, all of us, whether you think you're beautiful or not, we're all going to be fairly ugly one day. Right? Let's just be honest. This is the reality. Youth doesn't stay with us forever. Beauty fades therefore what is beauty a terrible terrible God it is a terrible thing to worship your beauty because when your beauty leaves it will feel like you have nothing left how does it work in the church it's very simple in the church sometimes we get so eager to serve the Lord we love to serve the Lord that is a good thing that is a really good thing to serve the Lord. And what, go, what happens is we, we, we say the, the Lord helps us maybe discover our gifts or whatever. We say to the church, look, we're going to serve the Lord. We come in with an open hand and it's all about God and it's all about other people as we start serving the Lord. But then what starts to happen sometimes with us as Christians, with our gifts, it's all about God and all about other people. And then suddenly we start to love the way we serve and we start to love our gifts. We start to love what we contribute to the church. And then we start to say, you know, as your man, what is it, Gollum or whatever, my precious. So the gift that I have, it's my gift. And I'm the only one who can use it in the church. I'm the only one who can do it in the church. And we hold on to it. And that service becomes the only thing I can do. Can you imagine if, if, you know, if we came in here and said, well, you know what? The only thing I can come in here and do is speak. After that, I'm just going to stand up here and speak. If something falls on the ground, you pick it up. It's not my gift. It's not how I serve. It's not how I'm going to do. No. And the moment we lose that opportunity to serve in those gifts, in those ways, Sometimes it can feel like we have nothing, nothing to offer, nothing to give. I often wonder to myself, if the Lord took my voice, would Shane Dean feel like he had nothing? I must confess, I probably think I would in some ways. Wouldn't be true. If he were to take my voice, I'd still have Jesus still have Jesus and he should be the most precious thing in our lives because Jesus he is God so what do Dan do Dan they take these gods you know those gods they take the Levi they go to the place Laish and guess what they do with the guys in Laish they slaughter the weeds they slaughter them they set up this shrine of worship And then it says this in verse 30, in chapter 18, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. What do Dan do? Dan, they make up the rules. False worship says, I make the rules. And false worship says, I make the gods. They take the God that Micah made, and they set it up for false worship. All the while, while God's temple is in Shiloh. Well, God's place is in Shiloh. It is false, terrible worship. What's the name of the priest? We find that out in the last few verses. His name is Jonathan. And Jonathan is a relative of Moses, which means the priest, the Levite, he should know better. He should know better. False worship says, I make my own gods. Can I ask you, what gods have you made in your life? What gods are you making in your life? Some gods are easy. You know, the gods that we make in our life, some gods are easy. Materialism, it's a god. That's, that's easy. We can see it. We all struggle with that. We do. This culture is so particularly image-focused that most of us will struggle with materialism wealth and riches, they can become a God. Our vanity can become a God. Our lust can become a God. Those things are easy to see. Those gods are easy to see. But then I read an article a few weeks back or whatever. And as I read this article, I kind of wish, you know, those things that are really convicting that you wish you just never read Well, there's sermons that you listen to that you wish you just never could listen to because it kind of convicts you. And so I read one of those articles. I thought I had enough false gods in my life I didn't need any more. Then I read this article and I said, well, great. Something else to grow in that I'm not good at or great at in worshiping God. The false god, the idol that he pointed out in this article was the idol of open options. I thought to myself, what, what is that? That's what intrigued me. It's like the idol of open options. What's the idol of open options? It is this. We live in a society right now where we love to keep all our options open. We worship freedom and autonomy, and we hate commitment. We hate it. So someone will send us a text, and we will not respond, because what are we doing? Leaving the options open. Just in case, I don't want to commit. We live in a society that does this all the time. Even in our relationships, even in our marriage. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if I decided, Luana, you know what? I'm not going to marry you. I just want to keep my options open. But you know what? Let's just stay together the whole time. But I'll keep my options open. Women, honestly, and young girls, Don't buy into that stupid lie. There are men out there who want to have their cake and eat it too. Let's let's get together. Let's be together, but let's not do anything about it. No. Keep our options open? No. Christianity calls us to be a people. Don't just keep our options open. We commit. Because on the final day, when you meet the Lord Jesus, and he says to you, what did you do with your life? I just kept my options open. I had a little bit of this God, a little bit of that God, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion. Will you let me in? No. There is only one way in. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do not have him this morning, you are not getting in you will not be with him for eternity. And so I would call on you this morning, not to worship the God of open options, but to commit your life this morning, no matter what age you are, commit your life this morning to the Lord Jesus. Say to the Lord Jesus, I have sinned in my life, but this morning, Lord, I commit to you, I trust in you, I follow you. I would urge you, to commit to him this morning. Don't worship the God of open options. And I'd ask you this, if you have committed to the Lord Jesus, have you shown that commitment to the Lord Jesus? One of the ways to show that commitment to the Lord Jesus is through baptism, that's what baptism is. The water isn't magic, the words we say isn't magic. What it is is this, we are saying to everybody, I follow the Lord Jesus, I'm committing to him, I love him, that's what I'm doing. Have you committed to the Lord Jesus in that way? I'd encourage you to do that. And if you'd have any questions on that, either Brendan or I would love to talk to you about that. It looks like we might have a baptism coming up soon. If we do, it's going to be freezing, which is great. You know, it really shows that they're committed, you know. (laughs) Last time I stood in there with Sarah, I was like standing in, I could barely get the words out. The thing was absolutely freezing. But at least, you know, they're genuine at that point. Commit to him, not only giving your life to him, but show that commitment through baptism. And the last thing I would urge you to do is commit to the body, commit to the church, commit to God's people. Don't just keep your options open. You know, I'll have a little bit of this church and a little bit of that church. Listen, it doesn't have to be this church. If it's not this church, it doesn't have to be this church. What I encourage you is this. Go to a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church and love Jesus with all your heart. And commit to that church fully. And if that is this church, we would be glad to have you and glad to even have you as part of the membership if you want to know more about that. But you will not grow. You will not grow in your faith if you do not commit and say, these people, they're my people. Because you know what happens when you commit? (laughs) Do you know what happens when you commit? People will know. People will see. How's your life? How are you doing? If no one knows you, You can go about your life however you want. A commitment will really help you. False worship says, I make my own rules and I make my own gods. True worship says, Jesus, he's my king. He calls all the shots and I follow him. That's true worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that we as your people would not be those who do what is right in our own eyes, but that we would trust you as our king. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will be people who commit. I pray for those who do not know you from the youngest to the oldest. I pray this morning that you might instill in their hearts and minds to commit their lives to Jesus, to live their lives for Jesus. I pray for those this morning thinking of baptism, showing that commitment to Jesus publicly. Pray, Lord, that you'd help people stand by faith and show others. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to commit to this church, to commit to one another and to live for you. Pray this in your precious name. Amen. I thought it would be appropriate.